So today I'm going to speak on the Heart Sutra, which is really important in Mahayana Buddhism and chanted every day all over the world in Mahayana temples. But it's really a difficult sutra to understand, so I'm going to share my thoughts on the Heart Sutra. So let's start with the first sentence. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva when practicing the Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. So we have Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, also known as Kuan Yin. And she is speaking to Shariputra, who is not a Bodhisattva, but is an Arhant and one of the Buddha's finest monks. When practicing deeply the prajnaparamita, this is the perfect wisdom. This is the wisdom that comes with enlightenment. Not with words, not with meditation, but comes with enlightenment. So what we need to do is try to understand what they're talking about and what the perfect wisdom could in fact be. Now, all five skandhas are empty. Wow, this is really a trip because... The skandhas, or the khandhas, are said the five aspects of what it means to be a human being. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. One is body, four is mind. And now, Avalokiteshvara is saying that those five skandhas are empty. And they talk a lot about emptiness in this sutra, and it's really difficult to define emptiness sometimes, but I will give you a working definition of emptiness. So the next time some Mahayana person says emptiness, you'll go, oh yeah, I know what emptiness is. It's empty of independent existence. Empty of independent existence. Nothing at the ultimate level in Mahayana Buddhism exists independently and apart from everything else. All conditions, the skandhas, mind, form, sensation, they're all interconnected and interdependent and conditional. And if you take too many conditions away, it no longer exists. So we're empty at an ultimate level, and we have form at a relative level, an intellectual level. So for me, emptiness is an intuitive reality that we find in the universe, and relative is an intellectual mind-made reality that we find because we are a human being. Now, Avalokiteshvara says to Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form then is emptiness. Emptiness then is form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. Those are the five skandhas. He's speaking about form, and form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. So we have this dualistic model or paradigm in Mahayana Buddhism that says there is an ultimate level that is real and definable, and then there's a relative level that is real and definable, 
And in order for both of those to coexist, they both need to be interacting, interconnected, and and it's our job to do the dance between the relative and the ultimate, as Ram Dass might say. So we've got the relative reality, car, door, sidewalk, sun, palm trees, wonderful. We have the ultimate reality. All those things are interconnected and interdependent and do not exist in the way I think they do because I can only understand this reality at an intellectual level, but I can feel and know it at an ultimate level. But because we're all so smart, everyone in this room is so smart, that their intuition has atrophied. And we have become dependent only on our intellect and let the intuition fall away. And Mahayana Buddhism says, no, they're both important. You need both of those. Those are two sides of the coin. Relative, ultimate, form, emptiness. So far, so good? Okay, we got it. Here we go. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. So we have, he's talking about when, it, when you hear a not, not born, that's the ultimate. Always existed. If you ask the Buddha how it all started, he said it's always been here. It's just one big circle that continues. There's no first cause. And that's why oftentimes when we debate about first cause, we talk about God, or we talk about the string theory, or we talk about the Big Bang theory, because we all know there has to be a start to everything in this world, and that's the relative intellectual reality that we're faced with. And the Buddha said, no, there is no start, there is no first cause. There is no first family. For a Buddhist, Adam and Eve were not the first family. Okay, and I was at a, I was at a interreligious gathering, and a Muslim fellow got up and said, you know what, as he looked at the audience out there, we all have something in common. We're all sons and daughters of Abraham. And I raised my hand. <laughs> so we don't even have that. We've just always been here and always will be here in some form or another. So there is no first cause and there is no last cause. You know, which is sort of nice to hear, too. Everybody's saying, you know, this is the end game now. You know, it's just a matter of time and none of us will be here. And the Buddhists would say, oh, no, we're going to be here. You guys can go someplace. We're going to be here and we're going to suffer until we end our suffering in nirvana. <laughs> Therefore, within emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. Huh? Five skandhas. There they are, right there, five skandhas. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. There we are, the form, the form. See how that works, you know? You have the eye and you have form, you know? You have body, you have sensations. So now we're negating all that and saying, you know, that doesn't really exist in the way you think it does. No sound, smell, taste, touch, or dharmas. That's what... The other part is, so we have 16, we have 18 parts here. We have six of this, six of this, and six of this. And when you go into early Buddhism, what you'll find is those 18 parts. And now the Mahayana says, no, you guys, you guys didn't figure it out right. You know, 
It's, they don't exist in the way you think they do. And we would even say they don't exist at all. But then they go on to say, but they do exist. See, this is the conundrum of the Heart Sutra. It doesn't exist, and it does exist at exactly the same time. And that's the ultimate, beyond the ultimate. That's the absolute, beyond the absolute. Whatever word you want to use, that's the reality the Heart Sutra is talking about. And the reason it's chanted in every Mahayana temple every day in the world is because it makes no sense at all. And if you keep chanting it, one day you're going to wake up and say, I got it. But you won't be able to explain it. Nobody will be able to hear it. (laughs) But you got it. No realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness, no ignorance and no ending of ignorance. See? No ignorance and no ending of ignorance. I just Don't you just love the way this sort of just stimulates your intellect in such a way that eventually you just overload and stop thinking altogether and come to that quiet inner place where all the answers are there but cannot be spoken or understood, but they're there. That's the best part. No ignorance, no ending of ignorance till we come to no old age and death. I like that part. No old age and death, and no ending of old age and death. So I liked that part until I got to the second part. And then I'm looking at myself and I'm going, yeah, so which one do I want? Do I want old age and death, relative, or no old age and death, ultimate? And that's what the Buddha is talking about in his enlightenment or his nirvana. You go past old age and death. So at a relative level, while you're still a regular person who hasn't meditated enough or listened to enough Dharma talks, you're going to die. But when you get to the place where you've heard enough Dharma talks, have enough practice, have an intuitive understanding of how the world works, you'll never die again. Nirvana. The unborn, the undying. No beginning, no end. See, it's right there. The Buddha was talking about it, but you can't just go at it directly because it doesn't work. Your mind does not work that way. We went to school, and we were taught how to think. And it's very linear. And one concept builds on the next concept and the next concept. And pretty soon we have a paradigm that we can use to understand the world that has nothing at all to do with the world and has everything to do with the way we look at the world. So in our little zendo here, what we're practicing to do is change the way we experience the world change the way we experience the world. Okay, then we go on to no suffering, origination, extinction, or path. Now, this should be obvious. This is the Four Noble Truths. No suffering. No origination. How does suffering happen? It originates because we grasp, we cling We have aversion and attachment. We have craving. We have a desire that cannot be ultimately satisfied. And that is the origin of our suffering. And then we have extinction. No suffering, origination, extinction. The extinction of our suffering we call nirvana. Or path. The Eightfold Path. Okay, there we go. It's just laid out so easily. The Four Noble Truths, they don't exist. And they do exist at exactly the same time. 
So if Mahayana, you're reading it and going, yeah, they're right, it doesn't exist. Theravada, you're going, oh man, it does exist. I've been suffering my whole life. I know it exists. I don't care what the Heart Sutra says. Now, just an aside or a digression, yesterday and today I posted two wonderful videos I found in government archival website. Number one, Houston Smith. Everybody know who Houston Smith is? Oh, Houston Smith was so cool. He wrote the book, Religions of Mankind or Humankind. Actually, he called it Religions of Man to begin with, and then he got smart. And, and he's, I met him at UCLA, and he was just a marvelous guy. Unfortunately, he's passed away. But this was a college-level course that was filmed for public television in 1958, 60 years ago. And he talks about the man who woke up, part one, and the Eightfold Path, part two. And it's black and white, and it's clicky in some of the audio, and it just takes you back and allows you some insight into how they were explaining Buddhism 60 years ago and what kind of job they did at doing it. And because Houston Smith's father was a minister, there's a certain aspect of preaching that goes in to his explanation of who the Buddha was and the Eightfold Path. And I can highly recommend it. Now, if you don't aren't on Facebook, you can go to my YouTube channel, Kusla Bhikshu, and I posted them up there as well. So you can look at it there. It just, it just tickled my heart to see him speaking 60 years ago. And he has one of the most intense faces as he talks about the Dharma and the end of suffering. That It just blows your mind. Okay, back to the Heart Sutra. Now, because the Bodhisattva follows the perfect wisdom, Prajnaparamita, the mind has no hindrance. See, hindrances cause us great suffering. Having no hindrance, there is no fear. And if there's too much fear, we won't do anything except try to stay in the same place, which is impossible because everything is constantly changing and evolving. And there is no place to stand where you are safe or even stand where you're unsafe. You always have to keep going forward, which is really disappointing sometimes because you have to leave the other stuff behind and go into the future, and who knows what the future holds for us. Good or bad, we'll find out. And far from all fantasy, there is dwelling in nirvana. Well, you know, delusion and ignorance is just filled with fantasy. And one of my favorite genres is science fiction and fantasy. And people are really good at writing science fiction and fantasy. And they can take you away and put you into places you couldn't even have imagined. But in order to free yourself, in order to be go past your delusion and ignorance, you have to let go of your fantasy. You have to bring your full attention to the present moment experience of your life. And that's one of the reasons we practice sitting for long hours at a time on these cushions. So we can come here and be present now. And what we find when we get here and get rid of all our fantasy is we find sight, smell, taste, sound, touch, and thinking. 
That's what's going on right now all the time. But given a little fantasy, we create these wonderful stories of how it's going to be or what we should have done, which has nothing at all to do with what we're doing right now. So it's really hard to be here because it may not seem quite as exciting as being there or there. But it's even more exciting because you can do something with it. Your mind can create fantasy in the future and regret in the past, but being here now, we actually literally create our future every moment through our karma, through our thought, through our speech, and through our action. So, apart from fantasy, they gain complete and perfect enlightenment. Now, up until this point, we hadn't talked about enlightenment, and we've only talked about the dualistic reality of being a human being with the intellect and the intuition, the relative and the ultimate. But now we come to the crux of the matter. In order to experience the beyond ultimate and relative in enlightenment, what is required of us is to see the coin. So imagine relative is one side, ultimate is the other side. And our mind is really good with that because we are dualistic in nature and thinking. But now we come to a place where we disregard one side or the other as being true or false, and we simply reflect on the coin itself which is beyond duality, which is beyond good and bad, which is beyond relative and ultimate. We are now seeing the ultimate whatever it is. So I'm going to use a word from the 1960s that comes from a book called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, Michael Smith. He said when he saw the coin, I grok it. I grok it. Remember that word? G-R-O-K. That is taking in everything, both sides and the coin, and everything at one time, and grokking it. Because the author, in trying to explain what the coin was, had to make up a word. Because we have no words. We have no understanding. We have no intellectual basis that would give us any indication what that is. And when people say enlightenment, well, what is that? What's that experience? Not who we are, but what do we do in that experience? We grok it. That's a perfect word because it has no meaning. It's a finger pointing at the moon. Don't get too fixated on the finger pointing. Check out that moon. It's beautiful. And that's what this guy is talking about. He said, complete and perfect enlightenment. Finally able to grok it. Therefore, know that the perfect wisdom is a great holy mantra, the great bright mantra, the wisdom mantra, the unequaled mantra, which can destroy all suffering truly real and not false. So he gave the perfect wisdom mantra, which goes gate gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha, 
gone to the other shore. It's saying we're going to go to the other shore. We're going to go from relative to ultimate. But then when you get to the other shore, there's still more work to do because you're just at the ultimate level. And now we have to get to the grok level. Cool. But in order to get to the grok level, you don't need your raft anymore that got you across the stream or the river from one side to the other. And that's what I found so fascinating about Buddhism. In order to be a good Buddhist, ultimately you have to give Buddhism up because it prevents you from the final goal. Because it's a concept. It's an idea. It's the finger. But it's not what the finger is pointing at. So every Buddhist ultimately says, yes, Buddhism is perfect, it works for me, I'm happier, I'm more satisfied, I'm more self-confident, I like the idea of going to the other shore, but when I get to the other shore, i got to give everything up. Ultimately, Buddhism is a path of renunciation. So you even give up the raft that got you there. And then you grok it. I'm going to stop there. I think if I keep going on, I'll just make everybody more and more confused and less and less enlightened. So does anybody have any questions or comments on this talk? Yes, we have a... Well, I guess I was kind of following you in whatever way I was following you at some point, but then when you said that the Four Noble Truths exist and don't exist, and I was like, what? How is that possible? But then... When, what you just said. So how is that possible? Yeah. Did you? Did you? I think because the ultimate renunciation, like in the end, no attachment even to that. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But I think it would be easier to look at a chair, mm -hmm. and not the four noble truths, mm -hmm. and then ask yourself, does that chair exist? And the answer would be. Yes, especially if you're sitting in it, it surely does exist. But then you have to say, well, what makes up a chair? And you would say, well, the legs and the seat and the backrest. And is there simply one kind of chair or are there infinite amount of chairs that people sit in and make and like? And then you say, but is the chair really exist as a chair or is it something that I have named? And how did I get the name for the chair? And that came through education or experience or wanting to please your parents when they pointed at this object and said chair. And then you repeated after them. And they were so happy because you were so smart that you knew what a chair was. But does the chair really exist independently from everything else? You know, Or is it like a tapestry? And our intellect just pulls it out. It makes it separate, and we can see it, and we can use it, and it is alive and real, and then all of a sudden, the tapestry takes it back, and it's connected to everything all the time, and not independent at all, and always conditional, and you say to yourself, well, I make it real because I can speak, and I make objects appear separately because I know the name, and it's the same way with the four noble truths. We have a name for it, and they are words, but the words are just the fingers. They're not what it's pointing at. So it's real and not real, 
at exactly the same time, and doesn't that just freak you out? You know, it's just the weirdest thing. When you start to investigate what it means to be you and how you experience the world and all the illusions you live under. Another word could be conception, like the way you conceive things. Where you conceive things and how you conceive things. We have mathematics and we have language and we have a lot of ways that we can, a lot of things we can use to conceive certain concepts or forms. You know, but then see, this is the cool part about Buddhism. Then the Buddhism says, "But what's the essence? What's the essence of that thing you just conceived, like the chair? Does the chair have its original essence? Does the chair have a soul that's unchanging and stands apart, or is it always pieces connected, doing the dance of impermanence?" You go, whoa, no, nothing exists. I create it, and it's there. But if I look really carefully, it's starting to lose a little of the varnish that was put on it 30 years ago, and, and the seat is starting to sag just a little bit, and it's always changing and turning into something else. And I, but, I, but my concept doesn't change. The chair concept stays the same, but the actual object is just deteriorating before your very eyes. And you go, wow. And for instance... Look at this cushion. Isn't this just an amazing example of impermanence? You know, it used to be round and fully stuffed and rather firm, and now it looks sort of like a football. <laughs> so everything around us is always changing and impermanent, and we, we don't see it because we only see the words we use to apply to those things that are changing and impermanent. Does that help at all? Okay, so do the Four Noble Truths exist? I'm not totally ready to say that they don't. They do and they don't. Yes, yes, they do and they don't. <laughs> you got it. Okay, great. No, okay. So when I look at all of us, myself, in a relative way, I see the cycle of samsara that karma and our attachments keep bringing us back through, and, and I'm here in a relative way. But there's also the ultimate way that, I guess, would mean that I've always been here. And always will. And, and pardon me, and always right. will no, be no, here. No and isn't that a real bummer? So You'll what, never be able to leave. What, what caused <laughs> the, the change, what caused something at some point to start having karma and to start thinking in a relative way so that I would see myself. It goes right back in the no beginning, and I'm, I'm thinking linearly about something that didn't happen, the no beginning that the ultimate me always existed. How did that change happen that now I'm seeing a relative me? You got born, my friend. You got born. And once you were born, everything became relative. You know, you're gradually ego... But that was the same in the previous life, or you were saying that's not the same relative me as me. No, you're, it's not the same relative you moment to moment. Relative you is changing all the time. It's at a very subtle level. It's hard to distinguish all the changes. But when you see yourself 10 years ago and you see yourself today, you go, yeah, okay. And we need to live in the relative reality that's been given to us through our intellect and through our birth because we can't live in the ultimate reality because we need to be separate. We can't be one with the door. We'll never leave this room. So that 
that change has always been going on too. Yes, and so now we found a way to, to go towards the ultimate, but still not disregard the relative. And when you see the ultimate and relative side by side, you realize they're both valuable and both good, and sometimes we need to be in the relative when they pull us over for speeding and show our little license. That's us. But then you're in the Zendo and you're on a six-day meditation retreat, and then it's really nice to be the ultimate because the relative suffers so much. You see, so there's, there's appropriate times to be one or the other, and sometimes it's appropriate to be both at the same time. Then why are we trying to lose the relative and enrich the event? Very good. We're not trying to lose the relative. We're trying to transcend the relative and have the relative be a tool and not our master.